Hello and welcome to What's the Big Deal About Greenville. In today's episode, I sit down with Brian Habig. Brian is the pastor of Downtown Presbyterian Church. He talked with me about his process and uh, how he found his way to the pastorate. It's a really insightful, awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming, Brian. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Um, we like to start off the podcast talking about your background so that people, uh, listeners, can uh, know who you are and get to know you a little bit better. And uh, So what was your background? Well, I'm incredibly fascinating, Bill, so I'm glad you're starting that way. Uh, Hence the interview. You're, right, right. <laughs> now, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, and a uh, family of four, have one older brother, and grew up my whole you know, life before college in Jackson. And I guess when I think about my own background, I think about around ninth grade is when my family sort of blew up. Uh, parents divorced, went through a really painful bankruptcy. Uh, yeah, going bankrupt. And um, that, that was a very formative time. And, and just so for anybody listening to this, I'm going to really try not to go preacher on everybody and start teaching you about the Bible at any point. But, you know, <laughs> things like church and Bible and spirituality is going to come up, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I would just say that in 10th grade, whatever Jesus meant when he, you know, if you read the Gospels and he'll talk about he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So wh- whatever he meant by that, I got those ears around 10th grade and uh God really changed my heart, and so I um, finished out high school, went to Mississippi State, had an incredibly underwhelming academic uh, career at Mississippi State as a business major, and about halfway through that time, I really started thinking about maybe the pastorate, and it was funny because my peers, my friends, when I, when I said that, whereas before I would have said, well, maybe I'm just going to... Uh, be an accountant or be uh, just something in the business sector and be a part of my church and serve the Lord in that way. About halfway through when I started thinking about the pastorate, I had at least a couple of friends who said, we knew that we could have told you that. Huh. So did they, did they go into why they, why they thought that or like, yeah, I can't, that's a good question. I can't remember the specifics of that. I don't, I don't know if they perceived some of the requisite gifting and I don't mean that in a, well, I mean, gifts are gifts. It's nothing to be sure. haughty about. I, and I'm not right. saying I think I'm the embodiment of any gifts. I just mean that maybe they bumped into something that, that needed to be there. Mm-hmm. So I graduated in 1990. I went and worked for two years with a campus ministry that had a big impact on me when I was in college. It's called, the, the, the abbreviation is RUF. It's Reformed University Fellowship. It's our denomination's campus ministry. And really was more in the SEC at that point. It's, it's all over the country now, from California into New England. But uh, I worked for it when they were starting a new RUF chapter at Vanderbilt and um, worked there for two years as an intern with, with a minister. And it was both a, a great first job right out of college with, with something that I cared about. It was also a great time to test those gifts and, you know, try on things like, how do I do leading a small group? How do I do meeting with people one-on-one talking about their lives? How do I do mm-hmm. helping a ministry do the admin 
you know, organizational stuff behind the scenes. So it seemed to confirm moving ahead with that. So in 92, I moved to St. Louis and I went to Covenant Theological Seminary and I was there for three years and I earned my Master of Divinity. Uh, I met my wife, Dana. She was at Ole Miss. I'm, I'm almost five years older than her. So when I was in seminary, she was at Ole Miss. We're, uh, we're both from Mississippi and we had mutual friends. That's what, how we got connected. And long story short, we married in 90, summer of 94. So my last year of seminary was her first year of our first year of married life. And then uh, finished there in 95. I ended up, my first job was to become a campus minister with that same ministry. And I ended up back at my alma mater of Mississippi State. So that was really cool to have this, you know, new de new degree and a new wife and uh, just starting out as this young working uh, wet behind the ears minister. Do, do you have any anecdotes? I mean, was there any in those early days, you know, you, you're kind of, you're kind of figuring it out. And yeah. Do you have any learning experiences from being a campus minister? Or? Man, that's a great question. Well, okay, I'll tell you what comes to mind is just thinking about really more as a job, not so much an anecdote with a student, is I remember in my fourth year, I really hit a wall. And by a wall, I just mean just fatigue and loss of just loss of spark about the whole thing. I don't mean I was like ditching the faith or, you know, or like, <laughs> right. you know, like no, I think everybody hits that about year three. Well, like I, the, 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 it was interesting because there was a, there was a man that worked with the same ministry. He sort of coordinated people who did what I did in, in our region. So he'd come and check on us almost like pastoring the pastors. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember sitting down with him that fall that, so that would be 99. And by the way, we don't have a child yet. He was on the way. Our oldest, Henry, was on the way. I see. But I'm working with no buffer. Like, I mean, I have a buffer in the sense that there's a wife I come home to, but I'm just mm -hmm. kind of working to the peg. And he said, this, this mentor said, you know, most people do this about their fourth year. Hmm. And they look up and they realize they, they don't have real workflow. They don't really have an infrastructure to their week. They're overdoing it. It's not sustainable and they have to recalibrate, and that, I, I don't know, that, that was, that was instructive to me, because I've brought that lesson with me to, you know, the next chapters of my work life, mm -hmm. not saying perfectly implemented, but it was, it was the first time as a young man I hit that wall, mm. was about four years in. Hmm. I, I mean, I can speak to that as an educator. Um, you kind of, you, you get, there's three years where you learn the job, Right. And then there's, and then you're like, I want to be amazing at this job. Right. So you give it 110%. But then you realize, well, wait, wait, wait. I ha actually have to have a life if I'm going to be like a human. Right. <laughs> you know? And so you, then you realize, oh no, 110% plus my life is way more than I can do. Just and then you have almost to, like, exact parallels. I, I feel exactly what you're describing. And, and, and that's why I bring it up to say it wasn't a ministry specific lesson. It wasn't tied to one particular anecdote with a student. I have great anecdotes about conversations and students mm -hmm. and all that. But just, just as a working adult, that really hit me in the face about, um, I guess really at that point, I was, I was about three and a half years in. Hmm. But it's exactly the way you described it. So how do you get from 
St. Louis to Greenville. What's that? What's that transition like? Okay, so uh, graduate from St. Louis '95. I work as a campus minister at Mississippi State in Starkville, Mississippi, for six years. Then I'm at Vanderbilt University doing the same thing for four years in Nashville. Uh, we had Dana and I had our oldest Henry when we were in Mississippi, and then had two more children in Nashville. And long story short, around 2002, some people in Greenville started having these initial discussions about what if there was a new church in Greenville that was the kind of church where if you were a Christian, you really could be taught and challenged and equipped. If you weren't a Christian, you could come and you could listen, and you, it, 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 was, it would be comprehensible. It would respect you. So in other words, what, what, if there were, what if there was a new church in Greenville where you could find personal benefit if you're a Christian, but you could invite your non-Christian friend or neighbor, and you know, they not feel like they got their head blasted off? And what if that church really focused on the downtown? And this group was not a faction from another church. That would really, I would not want to be involved with something like that. But this group was not that. And so um, I said, long story short, I'm going long. But this, this guy named Rod Mays, who still lives in the area, I saw him just a couple of days ago. Rod at that time was the coordinator for RUF nationally, like for the whole ministry, the whole country. Lives in Simpsonville or did at that time. And so uh, he was a go-to person for this group to ask, well, how do you do this? Because this is going to be a Presbyterian church. Who do we talk to? What, what steps do you have to take? He was their go-to person to, to navigate that. Well, that's how my name ever came before this group because I was a campus minister, Rod knew oh, me. I see. And so that was the, that, that's how the dots were connected from this group to Brian Haybig. Mm-hmm. Um, I was approached my fourth year at Vanderbilt about coming to Greenville. And, you know, this may or may not be interesting to anyone listening, but during that time as a campus minister, I began reading more about things like um, urban design and the urbanization of not only the country, but the world and how good design impacts civic experience and civic life. I just thought that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I've always been fascinated by downtowns. Uh, downtown Jackson, Mississippi, is really kind of withered on the vine, but, but I always thought it was cool. I always thought it just had this amazing infrastructure, and I thought it was the most interesting part of town. Couldn't really verbalize why. So as I started it's learning the history how to, of it all. Yeah, yeah, it's the history, history and just, you know, like, and it's a grid, and there's mm-hmm. different kinds of things there. It's not just a right. big track of there was. There was trees here at one point. That's and right. Somebody decided that there was going to be a town here. That's it. Yeah, and that the and that the north south streets would and the east west streets would actually adhere to those uh, directions. So mm-hmm. that that became interesting to me. Started reading about it, and when I was approached by this group and realized that the what they were envisioning was commitment to an area that really overlapped with those same interests. It was really a, remarkable, and it, it, it took a while to get to that decision, but we, uh, Dana and I pulled the trigger, prayed about it a lot, talked about it a lot, and then we finished with RUF and moved to Greenville the summer of 2005, so we've been here now 15 years. I um, 
I know we're going to get into this a little bit later in terms of like how, what you've seen, the, how, what you've seen in terms of the city growth. Um, it was it, it, does anything stand out to you just as like in terms of what, how has the city changed? Like, what was it like in 2004 versus now or 2005 mm-hmm. versus now? What, mm-hmm. what stands out in your mind? I, well, I'll, I'll throw out a couple of things. One is when I was just starting to do my homework about Greenville and especially downtown Greenville before I moved here, I was just doing the sort of things you do. I would like look on the city website and look about mm-hmm. statistics of, of downtown. And if memory serves me correctly, when I came here, June, when we came here, June 2005, I think it said there were 1,200 downtown residential units. Well, I mean, I can't imagine how many more it is now. I don't know the most recent stats, but that has exploded. And really, anyone who lives here will remember that uh, around three years ago, it just seemed like any wedge of land where some apartments or condos could go up, they were going up, and they're still going up. The pace maybe has slowed a little bit, but there's so much more ability now to live downtown and that, that that's one thing that strikes me and of course it's all getting more expensive and everything mm-hmm. is more more and more cost prohibitive so it's really more the haves i think another thing this has been an older development is i remember when maybe dana and i had been here three years we were having breakfast somewhere and i said i feel like downtown is going from white to whiter. I, I just, just demographically, I think that, that a, a very white downtown is getting wider. And not long after that, that was the headline of the Greenville News in, in mm-hmm. one of its uh, papers, was that it was confirming what I had felt, but I couldn't document. So why do you think that is? I mean, is it a statistical thing, or is it a socioeconomic thing, or yeah, all of the above. And, I mean, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to in any way convey that oh, only whites are the haves. But I think that what you're seeing is that there's, um, as everything downtown becomes more expensive, and as these downtown residences, it it, it seems like there's kind of a gap in who lives there. I'm sure you could find exceptions, but it's either young professionals, maybe fairly soon out of school or grad school that have the means to live there and they live by themselves or maybe live with a roommate or it's empty nesters uh, who probably have more of the like really high end downtown residences. Right. But it's, it's probably not going to be the, you know, 38 year old couple with young children. I think that's, that's they, they exist, but that's trickier to really live like right. in or right beside the central business district. Do you think that that's more like just the the nature of where those people are in life? I guess I guess that's what you're kind of getting at. It's like, it's, do you think it's the nature of where they are in their life, or is it like you know because there t- has a tendency to be like once you hit middle age and you have children that you move out mm-hmm. to the suburbs? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I go ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, well, just that I, I was just trying to. So is it is it more is it more like because you're because of where they are in their life, or is it because of some other because of some other reason? Do you think? 
I think for people that have the wherewithal to, to move where they want to, it probably is a matter of square footage and yard. I think if there's, if there's children, uh, and again, I'm not saying that, that there's no one in that area of the city that, that doesn't, you know, not a young, young family with young children, mm -hmm. you, you, you'll find that. But I think probably when people need to spread out more, feel like they need some more square footage, they, they might go another option, but no, it's hard to say. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why a, a rather white downtown feels wider than it did hmm. 15 years ago, but I do feel it acutely. Um, and, and it's interesting if you go to a downtown event like Fall for Greenville. I mean, I'm thinking of pre-COVID. So yeah, right. Yeah, I, I don't know when, what when there means. were crowds. For all of you listening to this podcast 10 years from now, I don't know if this will resonate with you. I'm sure there'll be many of you, but. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, pre-COVID, if there's something like Artisphere or Fall for Green, when you look around and like, man, it's like, this is just, just everybody's here. Every kind of person is here. Mm -hmm. I've had multiple, you know, civic leaders, people that really know their stuff say, when you're looking around, you're not seeing downtowners. You're not even necessarily seeing people that live within the city limits. People have come in from all over the region. And so you really do get diversity, socioeconomically, racially, all that, but, but, then Monday through Friday, what's like really happening mm -hmm. in the actual life of the downtown feels different. Do you, do you see that as a, well, I mean, is, is this a problem that needs to be solved or is this a, is this something that you think we could improve on or, and how do you think we could, how do you think we could do that? If so. I'm not exactly sure how to fix it. I think we're actually even a little bit nervous to name it. Hmm. There was a um, younger black leader that lived here. And the reason I'm not saying African-American is because he was actually not from the United States, but hmm. really uh, just really enjoyed the little bit of time I had with him. He's moved to California. Last I heard he's working with Google. Have you heard of Google, Bill? Are you familiar with Google? I I, I think so. Is it something to do with the World Wide Web? Something, something with with the interwebs. But right, right. But he, yeah. it, but he was just one of those guys that I felt like anytime I went to a civic event, you know, where there's up and coming leaders, that he was just always there. But I heard him say, "This is years ago, maybe eight years ago." He said, "I feel like in Greenville, diversity is from nine to five. And so, so you'll find diversity in these offices if you go in these buildings downtown or in restaurants or whatever. But from the way he was describing it, it sounded like he was saying, then after work hours, we default to our preferences. And our preferences are, are very much um, within racial lines, not across racial lines. So, I mean, I would say we probably need to get braver about naming it and 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 talking about it where diversity is not just something that we're going to try that we're going to strive for in the workplace although that's critical mm -hmm. although that's crucial or what that means for schools or for um, other civic endeavors but i just i don't know it, it's it's so, i'm giving you an opinion here but i will say sure, this I, I think that it makes me a little bit sad because if you, let's say you watch a documentary about the civil rights movement, you will see something about my hometown and not in a flattering light. You will see probably footage from Jackson, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. 
so racially, the tension was, I would say, much more acute where I grew up than what Greenville experienced. I'm not saying it's never, it's not here or never been here. I'm not saying that, but right. I just, it's like in the air in Jackson. But that being said, my experience is that African Americans left so much more cultural uh, impression on Jackson and on Mississippi. And what I have felt here, again, I'm giving you an, an opinion, mm -hmm. is that even if things were not as tense, though certainly not perfect, but if, if even though things may not have been as tense or there might not have been as many flashpoints, I don't feel as much cultural impression. And now, I'm, you know, and certainly there's, African-Americans are not the only other culture besides whites. There's lots of, but right. because of where we live in the South, I, I would say it feels, it hurts my heart a little bit that I don't feel that presence more in Greenville and, and the rich contribution that that brings. I, and honestly, we could spend the whole hour talking about this and maybe at some point in the future i'd really like to get some like have more like a roundtable discussion about like sure. you know race in greenville i think it would be super valuable for our community sure. but i would like but since the interview is about you <laughs> we want to um we uh i want to kind of focus in on your job in yeah. particular and this is something i'm actually really fascinated about what is your workflow so when you start okay so say you know, I know you have the larger uh, series on, uh, you know, a book of the Bible or uh, a certain uh, topic. What's, but what's your workflow like day to day? Like, how do you, when you're first starting to craft a sermon, how do you, how do you start? I've just always been curious about that. Okay. And I don't know who will be interested in this, but I'll, I'll answer. I, I'll answer the question. I'm interested. Okay, hey, I'm all about it, man. So if so, but just to be clear, you're asking just about the workflow of sermon crafting or the workflow as a whole of pastoring. I guess both, and like I guess both, and it's like I I think I would just want to know. Right, this question in particular is dealing with just the crafting of the sermon. Well, I That's think I can, that, I can kind of knock out both because really okay. a lot of this is answered in what Monday and Tuesday look like. Okay. Okay. Um, after all my power lifting and, mm. and, and praying for you by name, Bill, usually every morning, <laughs> I then, uh, no, I Monday, feel it. It, what, something that I learned from other people is trying to give each day something of a theme. I mean, I'm not rigid about that, but it's just that that kind of fatigue, that cognitive fatigue of jumping from one kind of task to another all day is really just so it, it's so exhausting that Monday I sort of stay in the gear of meeting and organization. So that morning we have an all staff meeting and then late morning all the pastors meet. There's there's four of us now. We have uh, three assistant pastors. Lunch, I usually have lunch on Monday with an elder or a deacon, you know, someone who serves as a leader in our church. Um, then Monday afternoon, I might meet one-on-one -on -one with one of our staff and catch up, you know, and, and you know, in between just some of the organizational stuff you have to do, email and all that. Yeah. Are you familiar with email, Bill? I know you know about Google. It's that, I mean, well, I just found out about Google. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there's email as well. Yeah, you can send mail electronically, so look into that. So I work oh, on that. Wow. 
on Mondays. And then, uh, so just kind of stay in that like meeting organization. What are we working on? What's coming? Keep everybody connected. So then Tuesday, once that's off the, off the plate, I really lean into study and I'm embarrassed. And I hope this could be encouraging to someone listening. I mean, me studying and having something substantive to say on Sunday mornings is one of the main ways that I bring value to our church family. And so that being said, I'm embarrassed by how long it took me to say, I'm going to have a set time to study and protect it and commit to it, where that's just like locked into my calendar and it has barbed wire and German shepherds around it. And some of that came from being a campus minister because, man, I was all about being accessible, being able to meet with students, pursuing students. I brought that, those impulses with me to this church startup. You know, if you hear me say church plant or mission church or church startup, that means all the same stuff. Like mm-hmm. we're trying to become an established church. Right. I brought all those impulses, but after a while, it just wasn't sustainable. Like I'm meeting with people and every day my calendar is kind of different. And then I was just scrambling to get ready by, by Sunday. So embarrassed to say it took me several years to finally say Tuesday morning and into the afternoon study time and, and not to feel bad about saying I can't meet on, I can't meet with someone on Tuesdays. One thing that we've been doing the last year or so is all the pastors studying the passage that I'm working on together on Tuesday afternoon. And we just hired a new women's director, Betsy Norwood. She's a, she was already a member of our church. She's actually a good friend of, of my family. But she has been uh, joining us for the group study on Tuesday afternoon. So it's really been great. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm in our conference room. I'm looking at a whiteboard that still has all the notes from our Tuesday session. So to, to get together and for them to help me understand so that it's not just Brian's insights but it's it's even about like how do you apply this or what does it make me think about or what have i read that seems to touch on this it's, it's really been fun to have more people in the room so solo study tuesday morning come up for air have lunch with somebody uh, group study in the afternoon after that i don't know how to, to tell people how many hours it takes it's like i'm thinking about it at the red light i'm thinking mm-hmm. about it on a walk Sometimes I have pen and paper. Sometimes I don't. But that's when the heavy lifting starts is Tuesday morning. So you like, do you ever get like in your mind, uh, like you try to like, I don't know, like there's a certain phrase you want to make sure you say or uh, mm. or maybe you read an, a news article or something like that. And that kind of say, oh, OK, that this can be pulled out and used as a sermon illustration. Or do you start with like. Strom's concordance, you know. <laughs> so, so, like, where you do you know, start? And, the question yeah. is, where do you start? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is one of my favorite parts of the week. Where I start is I print out the passage. And just so folks know where I'm coming from, I, I try to practice something that's called expository preaching. So it's not like I'm sitting down that morning to say, huh, I think I'm just going to talk about this topic or this theme, and I'll grab some verses here and there that seem to touch on that theme. You can do that responsibly, but what I'm, what I'm trying to do is called expository preaching. And, and Bill, you, you alluded to this. I'm usually going through a book of the Bible, 
And I, usually there's, there's too much of it for me to do all the passages within a, you know, quote semester or, or a right. year or a summer. So I try to find representative passages and then I take that passage and I'm trying to unpack what's there. So it's not like I'm over it saying, what do I want you to do for me? It, it's over me saying, here's what I'm saying to you. So I'll, let's say that I'm, I'm preaching on chapter three, verses one through 10. I'll print that passage on one, you know, white piece of paper and try to make it big font, have, give it lots of air. And the blissful part of my week is when I'm with that piece of paper and I'm just marking whatever I want to mark. I'm circling stuff and underlining stuff. Um, I'll think of I'll think of a song lyric or a movie scene or a conversation that, that could be a sermon illustration or uh, could could lead to an application of how to how to apply this, and I'll jot that up in the corner. So uh, just just I just kind of hit it almost like a contact sport, tactile paper, tactile pen, and, and now let, let me say this too: I pray hard before I start that. I mean, I really do believe God is hearing me. And he wants to use this. And so I'm asking him, don't let me come and try to insert something there. Uh, let me draw out what you have there and hear you. I have a sort of a hero that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> ever heard of. It's listening to this podcast. He was a German New Testament theologian named Adolf Schlatter. And just brilliant, 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 real, true scholar. But he said the great responsibility of the New Testament theologian is to see what is there. Hmm. And I love that. Um, I'll give you a similar quote. I heard someone define an artist as the person who will not look away. They'll, they'll let it be whatever it is, whether it's beauty or tragedy or highs and lows. So kind of, kind of, I think hopefully bringing both those impulses to say just what is there, whether encouraging or provoking or hard to explain. And then after I've done that, and then when I've studied with the group, then I'll open other books about the passage, like a commentary. I'll chase down a Greek word or a Hebrew word, that kind of stuff. What, what would you say is the most challenging part of that? Like, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds to me like when you first start off, it's almost fun in a way, just trying to see what the, what the Lord's trying to show you in the passage. And, um, but there, there, what's the, what, where's it, where's the sweat come in? Like where you, where you really, you feel like there's, it's challenging. Um, the sweat comes in. I mean, I guess it's all sweat. I don't want to minimize that, but it, it's just like when I'm powerlifting those Monday mornings, Bill. It's just mm. it's, it's all sweat. Mm. But right, right. It's the, the 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 sweat is it, and you know this from being a teacher. It's not hard to just vomit at the mouth, and blah blah blah, and just kind of do data transfer. If you're a mildly competent public speaker, you can do that. What's hard is to be clear and interesting. And sometimes the sweat is, I, I, I don't want to like, 
I don't want to insert an illustration at this point or at the end of the sermon for entertainment. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes a story can be entertaining, but I, I don't, I'm not saying, oh, hey, let's take a break from all that laborious Bible explanation and let me entertain you for a while. It's an illustration should shed light. It should help kind of connect the dots from your experience, your feelings even to the text or what the text is pushing you toward. Man, sometimes I feel like it doesn't come till Saturday night. Sometimes it doesn't come. I mean, I'm like shaving for Sunday morning and then it comes. And that is exhausting oh, wow. to me. Yeah. But I, again, I do believe God is at work and he's real and he's personal and he provides. It actually, if I may say so, it keeps me weak when I don't have it till the end. It's not like I, it's not from lack of working on it, but it's good to be weak and show up humble rather than, man, I had that sermon in the bag Tuesday afternoon. That, that wouldn't be good for my heart, probably. Hmm. Uh, like after a sermon's over with and you're kind of coming down from it, I guess, because there is a certain amount of adrenaline exactly when right. you're on stage. And, uh, but when you're coming down from that, when a sermon maybe doesn't have the impact you thought it might have, do you reflect on that? And then maybe have a journal, or do you, or do you just mental, make a mental note that maybe, maybe I'll need to revisit that in a few years when we come back around. And um, oh, that is such a good question. That is such. A, everyone listening, this is why you tuned into Bill Cameron for questions like that. I, I would say that it's fairly common that I just brutalize myself on Sunday afternoons. Hmm. I'm, I'm getting better about that because that's not that's not good. It's not, it's not even an appropriate loving of oneself. I mean, I will say things in my insides to, to myself that I would never say to you Hmm. Uh, because it matters. And because I want it to be really good. Mm -hmm. And often when I have brutalized myself, then I get feedback that, you know what, that would, that really helped me. Uh, But benefit, I mean, feedback from somebody else that they got benefit from it. I think you just said something helpful. It would probably be good to objectify my thoughts and write them down so that they're not just swirling on the inside. Mm-hmm. I will say though that I, I feel some some growth about that personally. That that hey, the sun does not rise and set on the sermon you just preached. Just do your best, and um, and hey, if you feel like you you didn't hit something you, you, that you really wanted, some, some mark you wanted to hit, jot a note on those notes so that if you preach that again, you know to g- give this some special attention. Mm-hmm. And then start the new week. Well, obviously it's not, you know, as a, as a pastor, it's not all about the sermon. Um, right. You have a congregation that you have to care for. Right. Um, and so – can you speak a little bit about like how you how you minister to the people in your congregation and then also when you have a moment to yourself between family and pre- preparation for a sermon and congregation the five minutes that you have <laughs> um wh- what do you like to do during that time so how do you minister your flock and then what do you do when you have free time okay well as you said it's not all about the sermon and preachers can feel that. So I'm, I'm glad you verbalized that. I, one way I try to care for our folks is that they, that they not feel like Sunday morning is just data transfer. 
but that I'm really talking to people about their actual lives. And I try to let them hear me fail. In other words, preachers can tell stories where like, I was in this conversation with so-and-so and he said this, and then I told him such and such. Kind of like, I, and I always yeah. win in my examples. I try yeah. never to win in my examples. Uh, let them hear sin. Let them, I don't mean just emotionally streak on the stage, but, mm-hmm. but let, you know, let them hear failure. So, and, you know, because of that me too dynamic that happens when someone tells you failure. Yes. And that I'm not speaking to them from the from the high ground. God's word is on the high ground, but I'm not on the high ground. Um, but I meet with people, you know. I I I, I really love to get together with people one on one. I feel so blessed to have worked with a campus ministry where you did that all the time. You got together with people, just the two of you, all the time. And you're not talking shop. It doesn't have to have an agenda. It can just be tell me how you're doing. I really love that. And I, when I'm in a season where I'm doing less of that, I feel it and it grinds on me. It's almost like I'm, it's like being incongruent with who I am as a pastor. I just got through meeting with a couple talking about just an issue with their family that they're thinking about with their children. I love it. That's just, that's what I did right before I got on the podcast. How do you manage that with COVID? I mean, this is going to date this podcast but i mean it like we're in the middle of covid now so how do you manage it well you know it has it just has felt pretty manageable to get together i mean either like meet outside for lunch or coffee and and even as restaurants have opened up the building where we have an office right now is opened up whether that's wise or unwise i haven't been too nervous about getting together with people I, i was you know now back in march and april when everything was a tomb i just almost met with no one Sure. Or I did virtually, but it's just really good to get FaceTime. So I do that. I like to pray, pray for people, pray with people. Um, I like it when I can catch somebody on the phone and say, I was just thinking about you or follow up on a conversation. Mm-hmm. That's an area where I, I'm forever feeling behind. I'm forever feeling that I'm not doing as much of that hmm. as I, as I wish. Uh, I feel the same about having people over. And of course, COVID, that's been tricky. Yeah. Um, under normal circumstances, we're, we're taking a break this, this fall, but our church, as you know, has community groups, you know, groups of members or visitors and that meet in homes. So we have hosted a community group uh, for a long time. And so normally there's a group of downtown Pres people in our home every week, but, um, but not for this fall. So, so in doing all that, when you have a moment to yourself, what do you like doing? Hmm. I do like to read. And it's funny because people tend to think of me as very bookish and my job plays into that. But I sometimes feel like I have to just scrape and claw to get just personal reading time that's not hmm. related to vocation. So I like to read something. Um, I like to play guitar, acoustic guitar. I, I'm, I'm no good on electric, but I'm, uh, I do enjoy acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. I love, I love taking 80 songs and transferring them to acoustic guitar. And like the more, right. 
the more 80s sounding and multi layers of synthesizer and non-acoustic it sounds, the more I love it. Aha. Yeah, oh, totally. I've actually done one. Yeah, just like just hijacking that and bringing it over to acoustic guitar. Sometimes this beauty comes out. It's really, it's, it's really something. Now, what you're getting there is like I'm, I was in high school and college, all of that during the 80s. So I'm kind of forever, you know. I was, I was a kid. And so it's like, yeah, I guess I was. I was probably like 10, 12 years old during the eighties. And I wish I would have been like just three years older. There's oh, yeah. part of me that just wishes I could, I, I, and I absorbed it in a, like a little kid way. Like it's just like pouring into oh, you yeah. and like, and culture was like, everybody's wearing a costume, <laughs> you know, they're like, pants and they're not, uh, not being ironic. Yeah. They're not being ironic. It's like, how many pleats can we get on the front? I'm, but, I'm reading uh, my fun read right now. I just started this. so I'm not far into it is ready player one. Mm. And it's, I talked about that with Henry. Well, yeah. It, like a while back. Cause he had, he had read it with my Henry. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Henry. All right, my, my oldest son is Henry. Yeah, yeah. They had, he had been saying, you need to read this book. And I just needed a fun read. So I'm, I'm a few chapters in and I mean, it is just high octane eighties unbelievable it really is so i lived it um i like to uh i like to i really do love to walk my dog we you know as i said on a church video one time bill we have the sweetest dog in north america and uh so i like to walk her in our neighborhood i like to hike sometimes i don't do it as much as i as i probably should like to work in the yard some although i'm behind right now yeah but you know just Nothing, nothing super exotic. D, um, in terms of non-Christian books, is there a book that has particularly influenced you, or um... one that comes to mind? And, and it's, it's not that it's not a religious book, but by nature of its contents, it's not a Christian book. Perhaps my favorite novel is *The Chosen* by Kyan Potok. And I've read it and reread it. I've gifted it. Um, I love that book. It, it, it's a world that I didn't grow up in. It's, you know, the Williamsburg portion of Brooklyn, Hasidic Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, and something about the way that he writes that novel. I mean, you can smell the inside of people's apartments and hmm. smell the synagogue. I mean, you can just feel it down to your toes. So I, that's just a book that I love. If I, you know, like th- those, those, those kind of things we say, if you could only take five books with you to some cabin or island or something, that would definitely be one of my five. Um, I, uh, I want to kind of talk about just here as we are reaching the end, um, what your what the future for DPC is, and I want to kind of divide that into two sections. Um, I want to talk about the vision for DPC. Um, can you shed any light on the vision of DPC uh, and its relationship to Greenville? Yes. And then and then the church as a whole and its impact on culture, and we kind of talked about that a little bit before. So, what's your vision for DPC here in Greenville? Well, I like the way you set that up. Um, let me let me say this to to to, to set it up. Uh, I, I think for quite a while, 
I didn't know the distinction between vision and mission. And sometimes, whether it's churches or businesses or nonprofits, those terms can be used interchangeably, but they are distinctive. And so, so my understanding of it presently, I'm sure you've got people listening that could explain it more capably, but my understanding is that vision is the thing that you can see and it's not yet completely true, but you want it to be true. Mm-hmm. And so then the mission are the specific action steps and systems and strategies to try to see that unrealized vision become real. So the way we state our vision as a church is that it's every avenue of downtown connected with the good news and loved well. Every avenue of downtown connected with the good news and loved well. And so, and, and so by the good news, that doesn't just mean like traditional ethics, you know, or, right, or right. traditional family value. It means like the good news about the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for people who disobey God and just that he came to cleanse us, to forgive us, to restore us, to redeem us, to draw us to himself, to connect us to God, just all of the above, all that that means. Uh, and, and, I, and I do, I do like the, I'm not saying it's perfect, but the, the vision of our church is to love our city, like to, you know, in Presbyterianism, at least in our kind, we don't formally have parishes. But the way downtown Presbyterian does life is that we view downtown as being our first and foremost parish. And you'll know something's a core value when you're willing not only to commit to it, but even to be in some ways punished for committing to it. By locating ourselves in the downtown, I mean, from a financial standpoint and from a property standpoint, you, you do feel some punishment from that because it's it's more expensive and it's harder to come by. And, you know, all, it's harder to park on a Sunday. Just all, all of the above. Right. Uh, so my, my vision would be that, Lord willing, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, that's still our vision. Is that every, whatever downtown looks like, whether it has 100-story buildings by that point, is that still for that, this little presence between, uh, what, MacBee and, <laughs> and West Washington mm-hmm. and uh, Broad and whatever other streets, that, that, uh, that it's, this, it's this group of people that gather there, but then we go out, almost like an aircraft carrier. I don't know if that's the wrong image, but you know, like kind of fly in, we're all like have smoke coming out right. and we've been shot up and everything. We kind yeah. of fly in and get patched on and loved on and all that and then fly back out and that we're, we're seeking to connect first the, the downtown to that good news and to, to love people as they actually are. I want that to be true in 2100. Or 2200, if, if that's how things unfold. Um, we, part of that is we want to continue planting daughter churches, mm-hmm. not just have a bigger and bigger version of us. So we have already planted a church called Grace and Peace that's more in the Poe Mill area. It's really about one mile from our church as the crow, as the crow flies, Bill. From, uh, from Real estate term. Yeah, those Greenville crows are, are something. <laughs> So uh, it, it's it's very close, and then we're we're in the kind of in the early stages of seeing a second daughter church called Resurrection Presbyterian be planted, and it's planning to target what we might call two nine six zero seven. That would be mm-hmm. Verde and Gower and just kind of that that area of the city. Mm-hmm. 
we want to keep doing that. I mean, we're landlocked in our downtown location. And so I hope that will sort of keep us honest to love our place, but also to plant new places to love their geography, if that makes sense. I, I would imagine there's like this, you're getting pulled in two different directions because the church, for lack of a better word, is successful. And, and as you grow, there's got to be this moment where you're like, okay, are we becoming a quote unquote mega church? When's the when's the critical mass where you have to to split or not necessarily have to split, but like where you say, okay, we need to consider like maybe breaking off and having a having a daughter church. Um, what's the what's the process of that? I mean, just briefly. I'm it's, just curious. Well, no, it's a great question. It's super organic. I mean, because there's like there's no outside body that's monitoring you or policing you to say, up, oh, it's time to make a, a new church. No one's doing that. Again, I think that because it's more and more getting into our um, water supply that we start new churches, that I hope that impulse can continue. As soon as this next one is planted, we'll start setting money aside for the next daughter church, and that help, helps keep us honest. Mm -hmm. As well as, like I said, the geography, the land constraints of where we are, we can only be a certain size. And the size we are is already daunting to me. I don't just want to be a talking head up front. I want to pastor people. And, and, you know, I probably should have said this in the first 10 seconds of our podcast interview. I am an introvert. I mean, I am a card carrying introvert. <laughs> so I, believe me when I say it feels daunting to me, but I want to care for members of our church. I don't want them to feel like, yeah, I'm in this thing and the pastor's never heard of me. Um, I mean, you know, you know, from worshiping in our church that, we do, we do the Lord's Supper every week. We do communion every week. And uh, the way we do it is that people come up front. And, you know, again, COVID's kind of affected some things, but we, we normally have used a common cup. You know, we, we, we provide little cups on the table up front if you, if you don't want to do that. But if you want to take from that common cup of wine, that, that you can do that. And um, I usually have one of the, there's two common cups. I usually have one of them, and I like to greet people by name. And I don't want them to feel from that, oh, isn't Brian great? I want them to feel like, man, the Lord cares about me. And, and God really sees me. And he knows me by name. I want them to feel that in that moment. So when I can't do that, that's, that's a problem. Uh, so I hope we'll keep planting churches. I hope we'll care for the people we have. Uh, it's imperfect. I probably should just, <laughs> just <laughs> right. that like, and that's the end. Yeah. And my last um, assertion is it's not perfect. Thank you. It's for not coming. perfect. It's like, if you listen to one part, just right. like, like that's the headline. Amen. Um, uh, so what is the church's bigger role in culture? Um, it obviously has shaped culture for centuries, millennia. Mm -hmm. Um, but how do you feel like, uh, how do you feel like uh, the Christian church, plays its role in culture in 2020? Well, great question. I, I let, me, let me start negatively. Mm. I don't want it to be triumphalistic, meaning I, I don't want to be a Christian presence that's saying, we're going to fix you. 
because I, I can't think of anything more off-putting, especially right now, than Christians saying to the larger culture, hey, we're going to transform you. We're going to fix you. Uh, I, I'm, you, you know, I, I, well, I'll draw on the work of a guy. He's, he's, a, um, he's, a, he's a true scholar of culture. He's a professor at the University of Virginia named James Davison Hunter. And he wrote a, uh, wrote a book several years ago called To Change the World. And the title is a bit ironic because his thesis is that it is not our job as Christians to change the world. God at points in history has, has dramatically impacted the world and, and certain cultural trajectories by the presence of his people. But none of those individual persons have any power to change anybody. I mean, you think about how you can't change yourself the way you want to change. So how am I going to change the culture or change my city? What he advocates for is what he calls faithful presence. To really build yourself into the, the, the community where God has you. To really build yourself into its life, its culture, civic involvement. Yeah, commit to your geography. If I can, I'm not trying to be jargony, but yeah, like commit to your place. Right. Um, and be faithful there and let God do what God's going to do. And that doesn't mean we're not intentional. It doesn't mean that we don't strategize for things that we'd like to see different in our neighborhood or city. It's great to have goals and to strive for things. I mean, like, for instance, right now I'm serving on the um, Greenville 2040 Steering Committee. That's a, that's a committee of folks from just different aspects of, of the city's life to plan for the next 20 years. So, I mean, I have things I'm chiming in about that I'd like to see take place and that, that committee's all about intentionality, but it's not my job individually as a pastor to quote change Greenville because I don't have the power to do that. What I do have the power to do is to enact a faithful presence where God has me. And a lot of that is love the person who's in front of you. I um I often think that Christianity like serves as a serves as an enhancement. It's kind of like well, I mean, I guess it does go back to the scripture it's salt and light, you know. But it it does serve as an enhancement to the culture that exists. Right. Um and so it can kind of plug in. It's like a it can plug in and enhance whatever culture it touches. Well, and I think from your background, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I bet you've heard when Christians talk about, you, use the, you, you just use the language from the Sermon on the Mount about, mm -hmm. you know, God's people are the, the salt of the earth, light of the world. Mm -hmm. I bet you've heard talks or teaching where that's made out to be an imperative, like, now you need to go be salt. You mm -hmm. need to go be light. If yeah. you actually look at what Jesus says, he says, you are. You are. Mm -hmm. The question is, are you savory salt? Or are you kind of dead tasteless salt mm -hmm. uh are you a light that is welcoming warming potentially threatening but you know hopefully a light that is an encouragement that's uh helpful or are you a light that's painful are you a light that is or are you a light that is dim or you know what i mean in other words it's not an imperative it's an indicative 
And so I think faithful presence is saying embrace that indicative and figure out what does that look like in your context. Um, couple of questions to wrap up. Um, lastly, if you could speak into a, uh, a microphone and talk to your 20 year old self, <laughs> what, what would you tell him? Oh man. <laughs> I don't, I don't I know. Feel, it's a loaded question. Well, no, I love the question. I don't know if you, if you were there when I broached this one time on a Sunday, but years ago, Dana and I got, we were in another city and there's a counselor there I knew about that I really liked and I, we had never sat down with her and I was teaching during the day when I was finished, I had, you know, free time. So Dana and I set up a couple of sessions with this counselor, just kind of like a check-in, you know, like check, check the oil. Mm -hmm. And she did that question. She said 18, but we were talking about painful time in my life and there was so Dana and I my, Dana, my, my wife Dana and I are on the love seat and the counselor's in this other seat and then there was this third seat over to my left and, and she said if 18 year old Brian were sitting there what would you say to him and oh my goodness it just went straight up in my throat I just was about to weep because you, th you know you think like man wouldn't you want to go to bat for 18 year old you or, or 20 year old you it really was moving to yeah. me what came out then, and I, I, I would still stick by it, is I would say to 20-year-old Brian, ask for help. Don't try to figure everything out on your own and agonize in silence. Uh, don't churn, thinking there's no one who can or will help you. Um, if, uh, you know, if, if family is experiencing fragmentation right now, there are some great people that care about you that have wisdom that you need. A ask them for help. I wish I had said that. I wish I, 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 wish I could tell myself that. And, hmm. Interesting. And I, and I do tell my children that to ask for help. Good advice. All right. We like to finish up the, the podcast with the name of the podcast, which is what's the big deal about Greenville. So Brian, Hey big, what's the big deal about Greenville? Well, I think that people come here and look around, and first, if they're maybe from a more uh, urban environment, and maybe they came here because their whatever their niece is getting married in Greenville, and they saw the invitation and thought, "Oh gosh, Greenville, South Carolina." They're just picturing like a t city of ten thousand with one dollar general, <laughs> and they get here and they look around and they just acutely feel intentionality and things done with excellence and uh, pride of place, and they're blown away. I just think. I don't think, I know that. We were at, my family was at White Duck Taco a few weeks ago, and uh, there's that commons area at Hampton Station. And, and um, so I went into order the food. I came out, Betsy, our family extrovert, our, our daughter, 15-year-old Betsy, and dog lover, uh, she is talking with some family she just met with and talking about, you know, met their dog, met the family. I walk up. They had just moved here from Philadelphia, didn't know anybody. Like moved here, no, just no context for moving here, except they could work anywhere. They wanted to make a change. 
they sort of came up with a punch list. Greenville pulled all the levers and they just moved here. I can't imagine doing that. But I hear those kind of stories all the time. So I think that people get here, they feel uh, for, for all the places where downtowns died uh, after World War II, everything moved out, everything became suburbia, everything has the same franchises and has these huge corridors that look exactly the same, whether you're in Cleveland or Simpsonville or, you know, well, sorry, Simpsonville to say that, but. Uh, well, no, not Simpsonville, Woodruff Road. Okay, let's just pick on Woodruff, Woodruff Road because everybody can get behind Everybody that. picks it up. Everybody can get behind yeah. that. So Woodruff Road looks like Cleveland, looks like, you know, whatever. But yeah. they they come to the downtown and they feel intentionality that a place is on the upswing and, it's, and, and the downtown doesn't look like every other retail franchise corridor in every other mid-sized city, it looks special. And there is a there is a cultural friendliness. Sometimes it can be shallow, um, but they do feel it, and it's attractive. And um, yeah, I, and people are drawn in. Well, thanks so much, Brian. I, it's well said. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. Oh, what a treat, Bill. Thanks for asking me. And for the for the two people who will actually listen to my whole interview, I, I really thank you for being there for me and, and for listening in its entirety. Yes, you should. I'll put chapters in this one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is Bill Kammer. And over the last few months, I've had a lot of fun producing this show. I'm an educator and realtor here in Greenville, and you've probably guessed that I love my town and I want others to know what's great about it. If you'd like to call Greenville home, please contact me. My email address is in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Artwork is by Corey Godby. Music is licensed by Storyblocks Audio. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, please email me at thebigdealgreenville at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, y'all.